Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossin. And today's episode is Have Another Drink, part one, where we'll discuss perioperative hypotension and acute kidney injury. In this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Now, today's episode is a classic better late than never scenario in that we're discussing the contents of an article published in the BJA in June of 2022 titled Role of Perioperative Hypotension in Postoperative Acute Kidney Injury, a Narrative Review. In a perfect world, we would have discussed this article a little closer to the publication date. Yeah, it's always hard when you have lots of good topics and articles to choose from, isn't it? So look, despite this, we wanted to have a closer look at perioperative hypotension, its relationship to postoperative acute kidney injury, and some of the proposed mechanisms and management strategies as outlined in this BJA article. If you haven't read it, you can follow the link in our episode notes. It's a great summary article. But before we dive into the BJA article, we want to refresh ourselves on the definition and grading of acute kidney injury. Great idea. Mm. So for starters, there are two agreed upon definitions for AKI that have been independently validated within the literature. And these are, oh man, this is bringing back exam. I know, (laughs) exam trauma. (laughs) (laughs) These are the rifle criteria and the Aiken criteria. Both of these diagnostic criteria diagnose AKI either by features specific to urine output or specific to serum creatinine and GFR. When comparing both the Aiken and Rifle criteria's serum creatinine classification categories, there are some differences, and this is where things can get a little confusing. Let's start with the Rifle criteria, which in addition to creatinine, also quantifies renal injury in terms of glomerular filtration rate. Now, firstly, the mnemonic Rifle comes from the description of the five specific diagnostic stages, and these are risk, injury, failure, loss, and end-stage renal failure. Think of each of these categories describing a more prolonged period of dysfunction. So risk is where the serum creatinine increases to 1.5 times baseline or the GFR decreases by more than 25%. The injury stage is where the serum creatinine increases two times its baseline or the GFR decreases by more than 50% of its baseline. Failure is where the serum creatinine increases to three times its baseline or for patients with a serum creatinine greater than four milligrams per deciliter, which in Australia corresponds with a serum creatinine of 354 micromoles per litre, with an acute increase in serum creatinine of greater than 0.5 milligrams per deciliter, which again in Australia corresponds to 44 micromoles per litre, or a GFR decrease by more than 75%. 
for loss. We see persistent acute renal failure, which corresponds to a complete loss of renal function for greater than four weeks. And of course, end-stage renal failure is end-stage renal failure. Instead of five specific stages, the Aiken criteria has only three, which it calls stages one, two, and three. Their criteria based upon the patient serum creatinine is actually identical to that of the rifle criteria's first three categories, R, I, and F. Truly, the main difference between Aiken and Rifle is the number of stages and the fact that Aiken doesn't define AKI in terms of GFR. For Aiken criteria, stage one, serum creatinine increase of one and a half times baseline, stage two, serum creatinine increase of two times baseline, and stage three, serum creatinine increase of three times baseline. According to both the rifle criteria and the Aiken criteria, acute kidney injury can be diagnosed in accordance with diminishing urine output as follows. Stage 1 acute kidney injury by the Aiken criteria corresponds with the risk classification of the rifle criteria and consists of a urine output that is less than 0.5 mils per kilogram per hour for 6 hours. Stage 2 acute kidney injury by the Aiken criteria, which corresponds with the injury classification of the rifle criteria, consists of a urine output of less than 0.5 mils per kilogram per hour for 12 hours. And stage 3 acute kidney injury by the Aiken criteria, which corresponds with the failure classification of the rifle criteria, consists of a urine output that is either less than 0.3 mils per kilogram per hour for 24 hours or anuria for 12 hours. Now, Kate and I understand that everything we've just described in terms of the diagnostic criteria for AKI can be a bit confusing in this format. Mm. So we've included a link to the KDIGO 2012 Guidelines for Acute Kidney Injury. Also called Kadigo, I should add. Okay. That's, that's what the medics go. say. They refer to them as oh, the Kadigo. Okay. Yep. How very positionally I yeah. like it. <laughs> um, so we've included a link, a link to the Kadigo 2012 Guidelines for Acute Kidney Injury. And these guidelines have a great table that compares the rifle and the Aiken criteria. We find that a lot easier understand when we look at it in this format and we strongly encourage you to do so too. Mm. It's also worthwhile stating that each of these classification systems have their own implications and limitations that have been really well summarized on the Life in the Fast Lane website. And again, there's a link in our episode notes. So check it out. That's right. So now we're going to move on to a discussion about the contents of the BJA article we've mentioned previously titled Role of Perioperative Hypotension in Postoperative Acute Kidney Injury and Narrative Review. Everything we discuss from here on in is from that article. And again, be sure to follow the link in our episode notes and read it for yourself if you haven't already. First and foremost, there are a few facts we want to share with you about postoperative acute kidney injury. First and foremost, it's more common than you might think. The incidence of AKI in patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery is understandably variable based upon the surgical procedure being performed. But the literature is quoted as being anywhere from 2.9 to 57.4%. For patients having cardiac surgery, the global incidence of postoperative AKI is estimated at 22.3%, with 2.3% of patients requiring dialysis. Perioperative hypotension is heralded as being a major player in what is obviously a complex game leading to renal injury. Now, before we move on, we need to address the elephant in the room, which is that there is no universally adopted definition of hypotension in the literature. Different trials quote different pressures, and it's worthwhile keeping this in mind as we continue our discussion. There are certain truths that we already know and understand about perioperative hypotension and acute kidney injury. Perioperative hypotension is very common, but there are certain risk factors that increase the likelihood of its occurrence, and these include 
patients with a pre-induction map of less than 70 millimeters of mercury, the use of propofol for induction, the use of large doses of fentanyl in older patients, emergency surgery, spinal anesthesia, anaphylaxis, head-up patient positioning, positive pressure ventilation, and pre-operative hypovolemia. It's interesting looking at this list, Kate, because I'd argue that almost all of our patients have at least one of these risk factors present. Uh, I say so. I do like the inclusion of anaphylaxis. Yeah, it's probably going to drop yeah. your blood pressure in most cases. <laughs> Maybe just, just a touch, yeah, just something. a touch. <laughs> anyway, all right. So, yeah, like I agree. Look, for our second truth, intraoperatively, there are a couple of different mechanisms leading to hypotension. And, again, none of these will be particularly foreign concepts. Things like hypovolemia and the setting of blood loss, cardiac dysfunction, systemic vasodilation, some specific aspects related to surgical technique, for example, pneumoperitoneum and vasoplegia, which is often seen in cardiopulmonary bypass. Truth number three, postoperative hypotension refers to hypotension in the hours to days after a surgical procedure and again can occur through several different yet common mechanisms and these include hypovolemia, cardiac dysfunction and vasoplegia. It's hard to truly quantify the incidence of postoperative hypotension, particularly when we take into account different worldwide blood pressure monitoring practices as well as patients who go unmonitored like those having day surgery. Though it's commonly acknowledged that there exists a good argument for improvements in postoperative blood pressure monitoring, feasibility, limited resources, and uncertainty about optimal blood pressure monitoring modalities limit putting this into practice. Our last universally acknowledged truth is that perioperative hypotension is associated with acute kidney injury. For patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery, there is a strong association between AKI and the duration and severity of hypotension in the pre- intra- and post-operative periods. Many clinical trials have found interventions aimed at reducing hypotension act to reduce the incidence of AKI. And this BJA article has a great table summarising these trials and their findings, so be sure to check it out for more details than we're going to get into today. Generally speaking, we can say that there are obviously clinical trials whose findings are in conflict with other clinical trials. That said, and again this is in very general terms, specific management strategies aimed at avoiding intraoperative hypotension tended to reduce the risk of AKI. Let's now take a scenic tour down physiology lane to discuss exactly why and how the kidney is so susceptible to hypoxia and ischemia during perioperative hypotension. Again, everything we discuss is further explained in the BJA article. In normal circumstances and when at rest, renal blood flow represents 20 to 25% of the cardiac output. In this circumstance, the fractional extraction of oxygen for renal tissue cellular processes is quite low at 10 to 20%. In a nutshell, the kidneys are well perfused in relation to their metabolic requirements and when compared to the blood flow and oxygen extraction of other organs and tissues. Structural factors impact the kidney's susceptibility to hypoxia, and these include the density of peritubular capillaries and subsequently the surface area that is available for oxygen transportation from the vasculature to the parenchyma, regional variability in blood flow where the renal medulla is particularly exposed to limited blood flow. Blood flow in the outer medulla represents about 10% of cortical blood flow and the inner medulla only 1% of cortical blood flow. Oxygen shunting within the kidneys limits oxygen delivery to the renal tissues and cells. In the renal cortex, shunting occurs between the afferent and efferent arterioles. And in the medulla, shunting occurs between the descending to ascending vasorectum. As well as this, the way that different tubular structures are ordered, particularly in the medulla, also contributes to limitations in oxygen supply to the tissues. 
The thick ascending limbs of the loop of Henle, which is at the site at which active sodium resorption occurs, are situated at the periphery of the vascular bundles. Oxygen-rich vasa recta are in the core of the vascular bundles and are the structures that are the greatest distance from the ascending limb of the loop of Henle. Functional factors also contribute to the kidney's susceptibility to hypoxia. Something I found particularly interesting when researching this episode is that the process of sodium reabsorption accounts for about 80% of renal oxygen consumption under normal physiologic circumstances. Now, when patients have an acute kidney injury, we often implement treatment strategies designed to increase the glomerular filtration rate, which, because of the increased oxygen consumption to achieve this, may actually exacerbate renal hypoxia. How interesting is that? Yes, it's often a you know a side effect of what we do, right? Mm. We're trying to improve something, but at the mm. cost of something else. Mm. So as well as this, renal blood flow order regulation within the kidneys, which is typically very good at protecting the tissues from hypoxia and ischemia, can be problematic. Typically, within the range of 80 to 180 millimetres of mercury, there is good regulation of blood flow, but beyond this range, it isn't as good. The lower limit for good renal blood flow order regulation is much higher than other organs like the brain. In plain terms, the brain is better at maintaining its autoregulation of blood flow at lower systemic blood pressures than the kidney. Medullary blood flow is poorly autoregulated, and on top of this, and despite autoregulation generally considered to be quite good, the kidneys actually have a limited ability to generate a hyperemic response to tissue hypoxia. That is, they have limits as to their ability to greatly increase blood flow to combat hypoxia. And on top of all of this, as if that weren't enough, renal ischemia causes aggregation of erythrocytes within the medullary vasa recta, and this leads to venous congestion. This medullary ischemia continues even after the blood flow to the kidneys is restored. And lastly, angiogenesis within the kidney is poor, which means that any vascular injury within the kidney is not well repaired. It's important to note that there are many facets of our anesthesia and surgery that, in combination with renal physiology, increase the kidney's susceptibility to hypoxic injury. It has been shown in both human and animal models that renal blood flow is decreased during anaesthesia and decreased further during cardiopulmonary bypass, and that subsequent to this, renal oxygen delivery is also decreased. Obviously, during anaesthesia, we give supplemental oxygen, which offsets this reduced renal oxygen delivery. Some anaesthetics also blunt renal autoregulation of blood flow, which when added to the impaired autoregulation associated with conditions like chronic hypertension, chronic renal impairment, diabetes, atherosclerotic renal artery stenosis and ageing gives quite the one-two punch to renal perfusion. On top of this, intraoperative factors like hemodilution, hypothermia, renal tissue hypoxia and vasopressor medications can also impact and alter renal autoregulation. Before we continue, I've got to make you laugh. As we're going through this, I keep thinking to myself, kidneys are like the chihuahuas of of the world. Like how do you survive anything? How? Hearing all of this, it's amazing that any kidneys make it out on the other side with normal function. Mm. Anyway, look, I'd love to keep this conversation going because I'm finding it really interesting, but we've run out of time. So we'll continue our discussion on the BJA article and the recommendations for reducing the risk of post-operative acute kidney injury in our next episode. Wonderful. Well, that's all we have time for on today's episode of Deep Breaths. Don't forget to claim CPD if you're a provisional fellow or consultant. If you like what you hear, please rate us on your favourite podcast platform. And you can always get in touch with us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com with suggestions, questions or just to say hi. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.